Good morning. I'm Jacob Alloy, filling in for Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. I'm glad you could join us today. There's a lot that's special about live theater, and there's a reason why this type of performance has existed for centuries. The magic of the moment, that even though the performers rehearse the show many times, each show can never be recreated exactly again, and a new audience every single time. I want to hear from you today about memorable performances you've seen by Theater Latte Da and or the Hennepin Theater Trust, both based in Minneapolis. What makes those shows stand out? Are you or a loved one involved in the performing arts? We want to hear from you and all about your questions about the Twin Cities theater scene and the impact the arts can have. The phone lines are open. Call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. These organizations that I just mentioned have had a huge influence on live theater in Minnesota and have helped put our state on the map for theater in the U.S. They've also given many people locally thriving careers. I'm focusing on these organizations today because my guests today are their longtime leaders and they're about to take their final bow. Peter Rostin is the founding artistic director of Theater Latte Da in Minneapolis. He's moving to Florida to become the next producing artistic director of Oslo Repertory Theater, one of the most important cultural forces in the southeastern United States. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Of course. Peter, of course, is from Theater Latte Da, which focuses on adventurous music theater. He's directed 82 main stage productions, including 13 world premieres and 13 area premieres. And in 2012, the company launched the Next Program, a major Major New Works Initiative for the Development of New Music Theater. And my other guest is Mark Nierenhausen, the outgoing CEO and president of Hennepin Theater Trust, and only the second individual to hold that title. The organization runs the Orpheum State and Pantages Theaters and the Hennepin Event Center, as well as others. Mark is retiring in July. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, Mark has been a performing arts leader for 50 years, and under his leadership, the Hennepin Theater Trust, uh, he has made the organization nationally recognized. He led the organization through the COVID-19 pandemic and managed to come out economically stronger. The nonprofit paid off $14 million in bonds issued by the city of Minneapolis 13 years early. The organization secured ownership of the historic Orpheum State and Pantages Theaters in downtown Minneapolis. Great accomplishments from my two guests today. There is so much to talk about, and I know it's hard to think of where to start, but first, I want to go to Peter. You know, you created Theater Latte Da from the ground up 25 years ago. I want to know what you're feeling now, moving on from that theater to go to a different theater and take over a similar role. What What are your thoughts right now? Yeah, it's a bit it's a bit overwhelming. I, I I've said I I don't really know who I am outside of a six one two area code. I um, uh, I've spent my entire career based here, uh, but I've freelanced all over the country over the last twenty five years. And so, um, but as you alluded to, theater takes place. In the moment, it's people sharing time and space together. Mm. And the the temporal nature of what we do, you can't freeze it. You can't, you can try to document it, but it's it's not a painting that can exist outside of, you know, outside of time. It only happens when an actor and an audience share space. And so um, while I'm sad to leave this incredible community, uh, part, it's part of what we do. It, and, and so... Every show, you you open a show, you build a family, and then you close that show and you say goodbye to it. And so I think as theater artists, we, we, we get good at saying goodbye in a way because it's part of the cycle of, of what we do. 
I once had a mentor describe it as the disposable art form, not in the way that it's like, you know, you throw it away, but in the way that it only happens within a, within a moment, right? And during that, I saw, you know, Mark nodding uh, your head. And so, Mark, you joined the Hennepin Theatre Trust about six years ago, right? And you're about to retire. So similarly, how are you feeling that you're moving on from from this? And as I understand it, you're going into full retirement now. Well, I, I think it's going to be full retirement. One never knows. I was struck by what Peter said, though, about uh, how this is part of our identity in this business. We don't do it. It's the the great joy that we have to be and the great privilege to be able to work in this business, that it's not just a job. It literally is who we are. And and living in those moments, creating those moments, sharing those moments, and uh so for me, it's going to be strange um, trying to find out, I guess, who I am outside of those moments and uh, uh, look forward to staying around in the Twin Cities, look forward to participating in theater, look forward to going down to Florida and seeing uh, seeing the new works in Sarasota. <laughs> so I'm curious, you know, before we get into where you're going and everything, I want to talk about how you got into performing arts and theater. You know, uh, some of the magic of life performing arts is why I have I've enjoyed covering theater and previously was involved in it. And so I'm, I'm curious, let's start with Peter, you know, what was your earliest memory of falling in love with, with live performance? What was kind of the origin story? I grew up in northern Minnesota in Grand Rapids. And uh, my brothers were all big hockey players. Uh, I, I was not so good at hockey. And, uh, but I, uh, I fell in love uh, with the theater really at an early age. Uh, Grand Rapids is an amazing small town, had a community chorus and a community theater. And, uh, and I think I knew I fell in love with it actually when I wasn't cast in a production of The Sound of Music. I was so determined to be in, in, that, uh, in that show and I didn't get it. And it and it broke my heart. And sometimes I think you learn what where you're supposed to be by by those moments as well as those those stellar moments. And so really early on, uh, I fell in love with it. And and then in high school, I had a really wonderful mentor, Diane Olson. I, I applaud these high school drama teachers who single handedly make make theater happen in in small rural communities. And and she exposed me to theater in the Twin Cities. And and I think in my high school years I did ten musicals in in high school, and so I was I was uh, determined to to create a life in the theater. Mm. And what about you, Mark? What was your intro into into performing arts spaces? Um, I grew up in a really small town. I grew up in Washington Island, Wisconsin. I'm at the, off the end of Door County. There were eight students in my high school graduating class, so um, we didn't really have arts in the formal sense at all. And um, when I was in high school, I, some friends of mine and I started, and we, like uh, the old uh, movies, you know, we cleaned out an old barn and we created a small coffee house there and had friends play guitar and just did a lot of things not knowing any better. And we, I did that during the summers, and um, I didn't know there was such a thing as careers in the performing arts, so I ended up getting a degree in Russian history and doing graduate work in Russian history of all things. And then one day I saw the words arts administration and things clicked. It was like, oh, wait, there's a word for what it was I was doing. And uh, so I uh, got my master's at the University of Wisconsin at the uh, arts management program in the Graduate School of Business there. And uh, my first job was at the Tennessee Performing Arts Center. And I've spent my entire career um, running large performing arts centers all across the country. So I kind of backed into the arts. I, I 
I never knew about arts administration until I saw the word printed somewhere. Well, that's interesting, you know, because I think when we talk about theater and performing arts, often we think about the the creative side of things, but there's so much that happens on the other side of the table, uh, whether it's directors, stage managers, administrators that make live performance happen. So I'm I'm curious, you know, were you ever discouraged from pursuing this kind of area of of, of interest? Uh, let's start with Mark. Are you shaking your oh, head? It no, seems like that, you were that, that you were natural all. and people no, supported for, it. For me, it was just the opposite. Um, you know, running the Red Barn all those summers. Um, I loved it. I, I, it was, uh, again, like we were talking earlier, it's who I was. It wasn't just a job. And um, so far from being discouraged from this, um, it's something that I, I found a sense of calling because it wasn't just about the performance. It's, as Peter talked about, we live in that moment. And to be able to create that moment the, to the sort of instant gratification of seeing how you've affected someone's life and then watching the ripple effects throughout the community of what it means to bring people together for shared experiences and people of different backgrounds and for different performances and seeing what happens to a city when you do that every single night in a neighborhood, in a downtown, in a metropolitan area. That's pretty powerful stuff to be able to see the effect that you have of doing what you love every single day. Mm. What about you, Peter? Were you ever discouraged from it uh, at all to pursue this, this theatrical life? I wasn't uh, necessarily discouraged, but I, I didn't have uh, the self-confidence initially. I, I didn't know anyone who was, who made a living in the theater. And, and so when I went to college, uh, I had a wonderful English professor, sister Nancy Hines, wonderful Benedictine nun, and and my second semester, my freshman year, she literally took me by the hand and walked me to the theater building and said, this young man would like to be a theater major because I didn't have the confidence to, to walk through that door myself. Wow. What an incredible um, like, like, like story to, to, to you know, have people believing in you and getting there. And, of course, we want to hear from some of our listeners about similar stories. And right now we actually have uh, Patty, Patty in St. Paul. Uh, what did you want to say to our guests this morning? Well, I just want to thank Peter Rothstein for all the years he's been with Theater Latte Da. And I just am amazed at his ability to take theater and make it alive for everyone. I, I love Steerage Song and All is Calm and... 12 Angry Men. Uh, I mean, it's just amazing that he has been able to take these pretty well-known themes and develop them into something musical and wonderful. Well, so thank you, Peter. I will we'll, we'll miss you, <laughs> but look forward to hearing what you're going to be doing in Florida. Well, thank you, Patty, for calling in. And, you know, Patty mentioned uh, All It's Calm, which is uh, a musical, a play with music, a, a music theater piece that you created. And um, do you mind telling us just a little bit about that? And what was the, what was, uh, how did you come about to create it? What was the inspiration for it? Yes. Thanks, Patty, for those beautiful comments. Um, all Is Calm, actually, we worked together with Hennepin Theater Trust and, and Latte Da partnered on All Is Calm for many years. Uh, 
I, I first learned about the story of the Christmas truce of World War One when the Allied soldiers and German forces stopped fighting over over Christmas. And I first learned about it through a folk song by John McCutcheon called Christmas in the Trenches. And I thought, oh, that's a lovely piece of hippie fiction. And, <laughs> uh, and then a book came out uh, by Stanley Weintraub, uh, which was a, an in-depth documentation of this truce uh, in 1914, the first year of the war. And I remember actually sitting with my mother uh, watching the news the night we invaded Baghdad. And I'd been thinking about how to tell the story of the Christmas truce uh, inside the theater for years. And, and that night I said to my mother, I'm, I'm going to do that. And I, I bought a plane ticket to Europe that very night uh, and began to do research. Mm. And the challenge was that the climax of the story is the lack of fighting. It's the lack of conflict. And I thought, oh, this, this needs a non-traditional form to tell this story um, because I didn't want to create a piece of fiction surrounding, surrounding that event. And so... Um, so I went to Europe and spent a few weeks in Germany and, and Brussels and England, Ireland, and, and just began to dig into the archive centers uh, uh, throughout those countries and, and came back uh, with all this research. And, and what struck me most in creating the piece was that it was the men whose names did not appear in the history books, who were the heroes of that event. They were the lowest of the ranks, who feels who felt like they had been been lied to. And and it was the common man, the foot soldier, who exercised peace, who were the heroes of that story. And so I wanted to put their names in the forefront. I wanted their names to go down in history. And Contus, a really wonderful male vocal ensemble based here, uh, I had approached them early on to say, hey, I don't really know what how this thing, what it is, but I think you're the right partner for it. And so often in my work, I, I asked the team, the creative team, if the characters were left to their own devices, what tools would they have to tell, to tell their story? Mm. And, and there was so much singing in the trenches. And, and I believe that without song, uh, the Christmas truce never would have happened. And so that became the driving force and Contus came on board and we created sort of a docu-musical um, based on actual words of the men who who were there, uh, as well as Christmas carols and, and iconic World War One songs uh, from the period. Wow, it, it speaks to the impact that theater can have to, to, to document and capture a moment in history. And I'm curious if, Mark, if you've ever worked on or have ever had a moment of like that in performing arts and theater, like you've had a moment where you've said, wow, this is one of those pieces that comes along once in a lifetime to change people. I think, you know, it goes back to Peter's comment earlier that the the wonderful thing about the art is it's not what happens on stage. It happens in that moment between every person in the audience and what's happening on the stage. So the art for each person is slightly different. And the the powerful thing that has drawn me to the business and keeps me in the business is seeing how that happens across various art forms and sometimes in the most unlikely ways. You know, we'll we'll you know, we do such a wide range of events at Hennepin Theater Trust, everything from Broadway to very small-scale intimate shows to concerts. And there are times sometimes when I'll even look at some of the concerts and go, ah, oh, that's really a commercial thing, and it's an oldies rock act, and half the original members of the band aren't even with the band anymore. Mm-hmm. And then I'll talk to someone who goes to that show, 
and you realize how much that resonates with their life and how meaningful that moment is and how that one song was played and it took them back to a special moment. And, you know, that's the thing that I think is so powerful about art is the fact that it just so deeply affects everybody in the audience in different ways. I mean, we saw it, um, we just had our showcase performance with high school students from across the state. And it's a it's a massive show, and the students are all doing um, pieces from all their different musicals. But seeing the parents' eyes light up watching their child on stage, again, that little moment of mm-hmm. art that affects people so deeply, it's it's incredibly powerful. And so whether it happens in something like All is Calm or whether it happens in the course of proud parents seeing their students on stage at the State Theater, you realize why we do what we do every single day. Mm. You, you know, Mark, you took over the Theater Trust, like we mentioned earlier, six years ago. And um, your career has really, ha- before that, your, your career, and since then too, your career has been, uh, has had a trajectory of, of economically leading performing arts companies, right? And, um, you know, like we mentioned earlier with uh, when we were talking with Peter and, and you, you know, in order to make that art happen, there needs to be that back end. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, what... What have you learned from all of that uh, as an administrator that um, has helped you appreciate art more? I'm just I'm just curious if that's if that's ever you know come across your mind. I, I think the thing that you learn is that when so much of your day is not taken up by art, I think that's probably uh, even even in Peter's role, you know that. Mm-hmm focus on the art, but there's a lot of non-art stuff that we do. And certainly in my day, you know, people talk and say, oh, it must be so wonderful. You know, I looked at your Broadway season and I have to break the news that about 99% of my day is thinking about numbers and budgets and things like that. But at the end of the day, the thing that makes it all worthwhile are those little transitory moments, those Mm -hmm. disposable moments that are not disposable, that have echoes that, that reverberate for years and years to come. You know, when I, when I see the, the look on people's faces as they're leaving the theater and, and knowing that we've touched things. But I think it's also impressed on me, though, that none of this exists unless we also pay attention to the business part, unless we understand what drives this. It doesn't happen by chance those moments on stage are very intentional, whether it's somebody buying a ticket to go to Europe on, you know, one night after watching the news or carefully planning budgets and all the people behind the scenes, the donors, the board members, the, the staff members that it takes to make all of this happen. And that here in the Twin Cities, culture is not just events, it's a major industry. It's a thing that puts us on the map. It's how we're seen throughout the rest of the world. I have friends in Toronto, a great art city, going, oh my gosh, you, you, you're, in, you're in Minneapolis? That I love that city. You, your reputation for the arts is phenomenal. I don't think we sometimes give ourselves enough credit here for how important we are nationally in terms of the arts and theater particularly. Um, you know, during that, I saw Peter, you know, nodding and like, kind of like vehemently agreeing, like, yes, yes. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts on that? You know, you, uh, an artistic director is also an administrative role. It is a, it is a creative role, but it's also administrative role. And so I'm curious what, what out of what Mark just said resonated with you the most? Yeah, the Twin Cities has an extraordinary uh, collection of artists who make this place home. 
And and in some ways, that's probably what I'm most proud of of the last 25 years for Theatre La Tudas. We've been fiercely committed to employing local artists and local theater makers. And and I, when I freelance around the country, early on in my freelance career, I'd go to another city and say, well, are we auditioning here? Who are the... And, and almost every city I would work in, I would go to New York and hire a group of actors who uproot their lives in New York and move to your city for two months and live in a corporate apartment and then pack up and head back to New York until the next gig comes along. And the fact that the Twin Cities is home to so many artists who are a fabric of our, a part of the fabric of our society. They're they're part of our politics. Their their kids are going to our schools. They're taking place in our, part in our churches and in our community centers. And they're volunteers. And the fact that artists are are an essential part of the fabric of our of our cities is really extraordinary, and not something most cities in this country uh, can claim. So, uh, Peter, I'm curious, what, it is, what is it about theater in Minnesota that has made our state recognized nationally? We, you know, we think about Hennepin Theater Trust, Theater Latte Da, the Ordway, the Guthrie. What, what is it about Minnesota that, that, that kind of draws people's attention, in your opinion? Yeah, I, think, I think we have to credit the state funding for making, for making art possible. And, and when uh, the legacy funds... Uh, were, were put on the ballot. Minnesota spoke and and invested in the arts and and you can't you can't create art without without public support and and I think Minnesota has I think second to New York for the largest arts funding in the country and that that makes uh, artists uh, making a li- making a life here possible. I think having the flagship of the Guthrie. Uh, is key and and there again it was donors who came who stepped forward Tygone Guthrie you know the famous story put an ad out in the New York Times looking for a city that would fund a national theater center and and it was visionaries and philanthropists who who convinced him that Minneapolis was that city and and so having the flagship of the Guthrie and then and then a, a robust tour tour market um and and presenters as well as as well as I think the synergy of of a nationally regarded opera company known for developing new new work, uh, Minnesota Orchestra, St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, I think it's the synergy of all of those performing arts um, that both put us on the map and and make it a place that artists want to live and work. Mm. Mark, do you have anything to add to that? I, I just want to amplify that because I think that's exactly it. Um, and I think it's very appropriate to recognize the legacy funds. You know, I've worked all around the country, and this by far, the state by far provides more support. But it's it's the financial support, and it's the understanding of the leadership of that synergistic effect. It's not just supporting art for art's sake, but it's also understanding that as a result of creating that art, we attract more artists. We create a higher quality of life. It just makes for a better community. And that recognition plays out in so many ways. And I think Peter hit it. It's not just the fact that we have these shows, these transitory moments, but we have the benefit of all that the artists and all of that creative way of thinking brings to the community and brings to all kinds of other businesses. It affects the community in ways that we not always even directly apparent 
Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that that is a wonderful point, and I want to remind people we are taking questions about this very thing. You can call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. We are, uh, Mark in Egan uh, is on the line. Uh, what did you want to ask our guests? Well, I actually wanted first, thank you for the program. I love the recognition of our very unique theater community here. And um, I wanted to comment and then ask a question. My comment is, Two of my favorite memories uh, involve a co-production of both Theater La Dida and Hennepin Theater Trust. The first is they produced a show probably six years ago called Cabaret, and it was locally uh, produced and uh, directed by Peter, and Tyler Michaels was in the MC role. It was Broadway quality. And then the original All, in, All Is Come, I believe, was a joint venture from both organizations. And my question is, as you think about the theater landscape and you think about the price of tickets as Broadway shows are going across the country, uh, becoming more expensive and our goal of having more people see theater across the country, could the Twin Cities and your organizations in particular ever be a source of touring companies nationally, given our theater talent here? Thank you so much for that question, Mark. Um, I feel like we can go to either of you for this, but we can start with with Mark. Um, do you have any thoughts on what Mark, uh, what other Mark in Egan has to say? Uh, well, well, first of all, I'm so glad that he recognized that sense of collaboration because I think that's one of the characteristics of the theater community here. That, um, and particularly Hennepin Theater Trust, um, we're known primarily for the touring shows that we bring in. But what isn't as widely known is the work that we do to collaborate with a, a host of other companies to promote, produce, and uh, provide a platform for their work within the theater district. I mean, most recently, um, we purchased the Dudley Riggs Theater so that we could continue to provide a home and make sure that uh, Brave New Workshop had a presence downtown. And I think um, we certainly see the impact of the Twin Cities on the National Theater. Look to Broadway and there are any number of Minnesota artists that are now performing on Broadway. We've had the great pleasure of welcoming back Minnesota artists in some of our touring shows. And um, I think we see shows being developed all the time, whether it's Children's Theater or Guthrie, that um, constantly the theater industry is such that it's a national network and it's not so much that one big show gets developed. It's we're, we're part of larger processes and Peter can certainly speak to how that works and the the role that local theater plays in informing and developing national productions. Yeah, Peter. I think that's a great question, uh, Mark. You know, I do um, think if you if you set foot in New York today, you would be astonished by how many folks got their start in Minnesota uh, who are starring on Broadway stages. Uh, the Children's Theater Company. Uh, is the most robust children's theater company in the country, if not the world. Uh, and and those young artists had the chance to work alongside extraordinary craftspeople. And, and, and the children's theater company also has been instrumental in, in completely revitalizing the canon of, of theater for multi-generational audiences. I also want to call it the Playwright Center, which is based here, uh, which is one of the mo most robust New Works development centers in the country. Uh, and so uh, we have writers, playwrights, compo composers. Theater La Teda, about 10 years ago, 
uh, made a commitment to foster the next generation of, of musical theater writers. And and so while we we don't very often see work that originates here going on on, to, on a national tour per se, uh, we have, I think, had a profound Im- impact on on the field, uh, developing writers, supporting writers, and the next generation of actors, designers, craftspeople. You know, we talk about, um, it's interesting you mentioned playwrights especially, and uh, one of the things that I've talked about in coverage and talked with uh, with other people in our on our team, we've talked a lot about how, you know, a lot of people are moving into television and other forms of, of writing and other forms of entertainment. And so I'm curious, it's a question for both of you, but I'm, I'm, I'll start with Mark. Um, what role does live entertainment play in this era where we have a bunch of streaming services and our computers, phones, tablets, you know, every, it seems like every major company now has its own streaming service. I think the the boundaries are blurring tremendously between streaming and live and commercial and non-commercial and for-profit and not-for-profit. And I think we're recognizing that on the institutional level, but at the level of the performers and the actors, that's always been the case where writers write. And if the outlet is um, for live theater, they'll write there. If they get an opportunity to write for TVs or movies, they write there. And it's interesting. We're seeing sort of a reverse also that um, the number of live podcasts that are being booked into our theaters is really stunning. And part of this speaks to the fact that as powerful as the podcasts are, as devoted as the listeners are, it goes back to the very beginning of our conversation. People want to share a moment together. They want to see the people. They want to meet the people. They want to hear them live, um, you know, as much as they can. I know for me, um, one of the great theatrical moments here was seeing uh, Javetta Steele. My favorite Broadway show is Gospel at Colonus. And early on when I got here, she, we had, we just opened uh, 900 Hennepin, the event center, and we had a small little cabaret performance and she performed. And for me, it was a total fanboy moment. It's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this person who I love is right here and I can see them in person and, and meet them. And I'd listen to the CD over and over and over, but there's something different about seeing people in person. So I think these blurred boundaries where it's, it's creativity. It's people connecting through art and the artificial idea, this is live, this is streaming, this is for-profit, this is not-for-profit, really don't matter as much anymore. Mm. Peter? You know, when when we brought all this calm to New York, uh, the president of PBS saw it and, and asked us if we would be interested in filming it for PBS. And, and so we did that. And and I'm I'm so grateful to PBS that all is calm has been able to play all over all over the country all over the continent but i can't watch it to be honest it's oh. really hard for me to watch the film version of it because it's just not the same no matter how hard we tried to capture it uh it's not the same as being in the theater and i think uh there's something about sharing space watching the act of empathy, ultimately acting is, is an, an empathetic act. You're watching a human being try to embody someone other than themselves. It's an ultimate act of empathy. They try to completely understand someone's spiritual self, someone's psychological self, someone's physical self, and figure out how to embody a life other than their own. And there's something about human nature that, that 
wants that, right? Otherwise, documentary would be more popular than feature film. There's something about human nature that wants to watch someone embody someone other than themselves. And and doing that in real time, uh, there was a study that came out in England a few years ago where they actually found a way to assess heartbeats of people watching the same live performance. And that ultimately, over the course of a performance, people's hearts began to beat in rhythm with each other, in sync with each other. And and I find that both profound and, and in some ways, something we've all known all along, uh, that there is something about being there. And, and I think coming out of the pandemic, we're struggling a bit across the nation for audiences to come back. And and I, um, I'm, I'm not worried that they're not going to come back, but I think we got out of sync with each other in the pandemic. And, and I believe live storytelling is a way to become in sync with each other just as human beings. You mentioned well, I love that, po- that idea of being in sync with each other because I think that mm. that's one of the powerful reasons at a macro scale also why the arts matter as the heart of the city. You know, we, mm. we see articles now where we talk about the the city becoming sort of an event center because, you know, with office declining. But it's not just the events, it's that being in sync. And one of the great things about the arts and and I see it with the downtown also, it's one of the f- few places where the entire city comes together where we don't sort of self-select. You know, we're on Zoom calls all day and we self-select who we're with. And if we're just in our neighborhood, you know, there's a certain amount of self-selection demographically that's going on. And we go to restaurants and there are people there like us. But when you come downtown, when you come to the theater, that's you're not self-selecting. There are people that are in synchronicity with you in terms of values in return in terms of the art form in terms of the story but it's one of the few places where the city comes together and shows itself and develops that empathy develops that synchronicity with each other and that's that's incredibly powerful not only for us as individuals but for i for our identity as a community and a way to build community Mm. You you mentioned the the COVID nineteen pandemic and its huge disruption on live performance, and so I'm curious what it was, what it's now like having you know uh, gotten through what many would consider the worst of it, been able to produce seasons where people could come back and enjoy live performance. What 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 is it? What would that what did that look like the last two years of of trudging through? And we can we can start with Mark. Obviously, you know you were able to come out of this even more economically strong and pay back yeah. uh, pay back bonds that weren't expected to be paid back. For for over a decade. So what was that like for you? It was really quiet downtown for a couple of years, that's for <laughs> sure. Um, I, I think like all arts organizations, like all businesses, there was just this vast sense of the unknown. You get up every day and you didn't know where this led. You know, There was no clear path out. There was a certain sense of treading water. Um, um, I think now for us, the downtown feels great in some ways it feels like when i see the audiences back on a night and especially these wonderful summer nights and a weekend like this coming up with you know we've got pride and we just had the stone arch bridge festival and we've got tootsie and we've got twins games and you go downtown now and it's like oh yeah that covid that used to be a thing but in the moment 
Um, I still vividly remember getting the word that we had to shut down and thinking, oh, this will be two Mm. weeks and soon it's two years. And I think the biggest thing was just that sense of uncertainty, that sense of unknown and what does art look like? How do we deal with this? What does storytelling and empathy look like when empathy is seeing Peter's face on a screen somewhere? (laughs) You know, Um, so it's been a huge relief coming out of this, returning to live theater. Still a lot of unknowns. There's still a lot of what ifs. There's still a lot of trying to figure out what the next step forward is, but at least we've got a foundation to work from and something to strive toward. Mm. Peter? I think it's impossible to think about the pandemic shutdown without thinking about the murder of George Floyd. Mm. And so those two events will be forever linked, I think, in in, yeah. in the way humanity looks at that moment in history. I hope they do. Um, and so I, coming out of the pandemic is is it is wonderful to be back in person again, but but how do we come back differently? Mm-hmm. And what is our commitment to a more equitable industry? And what stories are we choosing to tell? And who are we choosing to tell those stories? Um, it's, uh, in some ways, that's the steeper climb uh, than coming out of the pandemic, because we have control over that. And um, and so I think there's uh, there's great, joy in coming back together but i think there's a much greater sense of responsibility to come back differently Mm -hmm. i think there's a certain sense to your point i think there's a certain sense of renewed focus on intentionality that before before everything got shut down it was sort of business we thought we understood what we were doing and every year it was let's pick a season let's do some new works and i i I like the points that you just made that we have to think a little bit more carefully now about what story are we telling? Who are we telling it with? To whom are we telling it? Why are we telling it? Things that we thought were part of the discussion before, but maybe weren't quite as, we weren't quite as self-aware of those questions. And I think that's the powerful change that moving away from just our audiences back, but why are they back? What are they back for? What is our responsibility that in the arts, those questions have really moved front and center in a way that they weren't quite as front and center before. Mm. I, of course, want to leave time to talk about where you're going, what your futures are. Um, so, Peter, you know, you're you're about to go run this majorly influential um, organization, Oslo Repertory Theater in Florida. What can you say about its legacy and its impact it's made? And you coming in to kind of grab the baton and be the next, be the next producing artistic director. What is, can you, what can you say about it? Yes. Oslo Repertory Theater has been around for uh, six decades, over six decades now. Um, and it, uh, it's Florida's largest uh, nonprofit regional theater. It uh, was founded as a classical company um, with faculty from Florida State University and it's still affiliated with Florida State University. It has a graduate acting program. And and it's a repertory company. So they do, in the winter season, they'll do four plays in rep. So you could come to Sarasota and see four plays in a week. Um, uh, it's a resident acting company for that repertory season. Uh, the shift has been away from the classics under Michael Edwards' uh, leadership, really shifting more towards the American canon and and new work 
and and now also under Michael's leadership, um, they've invested more heavily in in American musical theater, mm. and so uh, they do uh, six main stage productions a year plus uh, a whole season of student productions in the MFA program. And uh, I've done a number of projects there as a freelance director, and was was thrilled um, with those experiences. And they have extraordinary craftspeople, some of the best scene shops and costume shops in the country. And and they're very interested in new work and having their next chapter uh, be much more new work. And so that'll be the thrust of, of my tenure is to, to develop and, and premiere uh, new plays and musicals. What does it mean to be an artistic director? I mean, you've just done it for 25 years here uh, at Theatre La Teda, but now you're going and being a producing artistic director. What does that mean? What is What are the skills that, that you, you are bringing with you and that you had to develop to be good at that job? Yeah, it's really, um, it, it's definitely two sides of the brain. There's the business end of it um, and the fundraising side of it and leading a staff in marketing and fundraising uh, and operations, as well as the artistic uh, endeavors. So starting with what stories are we telling and who are the people to best tell those stories? And so um, at, at Theatre La Tira, I'm the artistic director uh, and we have a managing director, uh, Alyssa, Alisa Spencer Kaplan, really wonderful managing director. And uh, and both of us report to the board. A producing artistic director is basically the artistic director and the CEO. And so um, both the business and the art will, uh, will fall to me. Mm. Well, you are off to a new role, but Mark, you are retiring, retiring, right? So what, is, what are your plans in retirement now? <laughs> Um, I'm not sure what my plans in retirement are. Um, the best advice I got was uh, don't say yes to anything for the first six months, but I expect that uh, it's it's going to be hard to walk away completely from the arts. I'm involved with a number of boards and a number of arts organizations. Uh, I still have lots of conversations with former students, former colleagues, so I suspect I'll I'll be involved in the arts, uh, maybe uh, a little bit more choicefully now than having problems come to me. I'll be able to come to problems, which is uh, uh, kind of a nice way of thinking about things. But I, as uh, is as typical when someone in my position, the usual comment is I'll be spending more time with family, traveling, and uh, more recreation. Hope to get a little bit more sailing in than I've gotten in in the past and some other things. But uh can't you know like we started out earlier this is not just a job this is something this is who we are so i can't imagine fully leaving the arts behind and i intend to stay in the twin cities it's a great place and i uh, love it here what what led to the decision to to say okay this is this is the time to to step away from from this and I, and retire i think it was you know for for the organization and for me the right time i mean it was you know i'm of the age where it was it was on the horizon regardless, and I looked at the organization, and we'd achieved a lot of our goals. We've reopened. We bought um, the theaters. We bought the Riggs Theater. Um, all the pieces are in place, and I thought it was appropriate that we now turn the reins over to someone with a clean sheet of paper rather than me getting halfway down the track and you know, changing horses midstream like that. And we've been very fortunate um, we conducted a national search, and I think it um, goes to what we said earlier, evidence of the stature of the cities and the organization that we had 
a great slate of national candidates and Todd Dusing, who is the chief operating officer of the Cincinnati Performing Arts Center, the Arnoff Center, is coming here to lead this organization and uh, could not be happier. And Peter, what was the decision for you to not only leave um, this theater you've built from the ground up, but also move (laughs) into a different state entirely? Mm Yeah, I, I, I'm asking myself that question daily. Uh, it's it's hard to leave this community, um, but 25 years is a long time with an organization, and, and even I longer think, as a director. Too. And even yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, 30 years here as a director. And uh, but I feel like the organization is in solid footing um, and and better financial shape than we've ever been in. We have our audiences coming back, a solid donor base. So I feel like the organization is ready to thrive with a new leader. And I, f- I think 25 years is, is uh, long enough for, for one voice to drive an arts organization. And so I'm excited for Latte Da and its next chapter. They're in the middle of the search right now. They had a robust slate of candidates, and uh, I'm not a part of that process, uh, for, which is the right thing. Uh, but I'm excited for, for its next chapter. And and Oslo Repertory Theater felt like the right fit. It's it's a substantially larger organization than Latte Da, but it's still um, an organization that will allow me to both be an artist as well as an artistic director. In our last few minutes here, I want to just ask really quickly: if you were give, if you were to give advice to somebody listening today, who like yourselves many years ago didn't know that they could have a career in the arts, what would you say? We'll start with Peter. You can do it. Passion will take you a lot further than than talent uh, and and skills. You can gain skills if you have the passion for it. Um, that's what gets you up in the morning. That's what uh, makes you go to bed late at night. Um, uh, follow that. Follow that passion. Mark, uh, same thing. Uh, just go for it and do it. It's a it's a field that's much more broad than people expect and understand, and it's. Um, it's a great life. It's a great lifestyle, and it's a uh, it's a job that has a lot of meaning attached to it, and it's wonderful to have that. And very quickly, for you, people who are going to be coming into your roles in the future, whether that's next or later, what's one quick piece of advice you would have? Listen. Oh, listen. Oh, that's a good one. I like that a lot. But you piece of advice is appreciate what a great city and what a great community you're coming into. Wow. Well, we are about at time today. I want to thank our guests. Peter Rossi is the outgoing founding artistic director of Theatre La Teda in Minneapolis, which is celebrating its 25th year, currently with the production of Next to Normal that Peter directed. And Mark Nierenhausen, my other guest, is the outgoing CEO and president of Hennepin Theatre Trust, which owns the State, Orpheum, and Pantages Theatres along Hennepin Avenue in downtown Minneapolis, which also has a show opening tonight. Tootsie, right? And uh, this conversation was, was produced by Danelle Coutier with help from Matt Alvarez. Our engineer is Derek uh, Ramirez. Be safe, everyone. Angela Davis will be back tomorrow morning at 9. Enjoy the rest of your days. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.